welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. today. So if you've got your Bibles with with you, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 5. I've got a picture coming up. You guys may recognize this guy. This is Phil Robertson, and this is one of my favorite people in the world. He has had a really interesting life, and I know many of you recognize him. Uh, Phil grew up very, very poor, and his family hunted for a, literally for a lifestyle. They didn't have much else, but it turned out even though his first love was hunting, turned out Phil was pretty good at football. And so he had an opportunity to go on scholarship where Terry Bradshaw was his backup. That's how good Phil was at football. He had an opportunity to go to the NFL, but however, he had only saw football as an opportunity to get him into college. He really didn't like it. So he told the NFL no in order to be able to spend more time specifically duck hunting. That seems like a dumb decision, but he's one of those guys that he's just, no matter what he does, it's going to work out well for him. Well, before too long, he decided he didn't like the duck calls in the 1970s. It didn't sound real enough for him. So he began experimenting with different ways of making duck calls, and he eventually created the Duck Commander Duck Call, which he got filthy rich off of. And he became, him and his family became especially even more famous outside of just the duck hunting community when they were featured in a reality show called Duck Dynasty. Now, I love Phil because he is a hero to me, not because he's a hunter, which I love to hunt, but because he is a hunter who puts God first. I love his relationship with the Lord, and he has time and time again been willing to lose everything in order to stand up for the truth of God's word. But it wasn't always that way for him. Sometime after college, he um, was in the 1970s, he was living a pretty rough rough lifestyle. Um, There was a point in time where his job was he ran a bar, didn't get to do a lot of duck hunting. And this was not a bar like the little, you know, college town bar that people go to. This was one of those rough roadhouse bars. In fact, he kept a 45 strapped to his side at all times for protection of himself and his property. Uh, During this time, he had an affair, ended up having a, a, a child with another woman, almost lost his marriage during this time. And if you ever ask him about this time period, he would tell you that that what he served, what he worshipped during this time was the drugs, sex, and rock and roll lifestyle. But he found out that that lifestyle was, was not compatible with him, that it was killing him very slowly. And in the midst of all of this turmoil, he turned to God. And he realized that the promises of the drug, sex, and rock and roll lifestyle was nothing compared to the promises of God. And he was delivered from the destruction of that when he was saved. And you see a complete change from that moment on in who this man was. But it come at a cost. Because when we come to Christ, when we get saved, it is an absolute free gift. But it will cost you everything. And and Phil knew, as many of us do, that if he was going to follow God, he could not do so and also worship the God of drugs, sex, and rock and roll. Those two lifestyles are not compatible. And that's an expectation for Christians and non-Christians alike. I think we would all understand that that is not a lifestyle that you can live and follow Christ at the same time. And I don't know, maybe you're sitting here, maybe drugs, sex, and rock and roll is your lifestyle. Maybe that's the God that you serve, that you spend your life pursuing. But I think there's another God that that as much as we would turn away from drugs, sex, and rock and roll, I think there's another God that you and I serve. Another God that has infiltrated our lives, that that we tend to um, give our lives to, that we pursue, that is just as dangerous, but we secretly struggle with it. 
For the next three weeks, we're going to call this God the God of money, fame, and all the things. I, I think as Christians, we have a problem with a lifestyle that is not compatible with following Christ. And it starts at birth from us. I'm a little bit younger than many of you. Maybe not everybody in here had this experience, but those that are my age and younger, you guys remember the toy all at Walmart when you were little? Like you go in and it's just arranged colorfully, like you would be walking down and it's just aisle after aisle after aisle of things that you want. And it's advertised in such a way, it says, these are the things that will make you happy. You would watch TV and as a kid, it was always about get your parents to buy you these Legos or these Hot Wheels or these Barbie dolls. This is what makes you happy. And we're trained from a young age that that is what's important in life. It doesn't change when we go off to school and we get to fourth grade and we're like, why do I have to write my multiplication tables 28 times? That's dumb. What, what is this going to do for me? And what, what did our teachers tell us? Well, you go to school so you can get smarter, so you can grow up and get a good job that pays good, what? Money. And so again, even in our schooling system, in the place we're trained maybe more than anywhere else, we're told that the purpose of our life is to chase money so that we can have things. And then we, we, we grow out of school. Maybe we go to college. Maybe we start a career. We get into our career, and what do we immediately think we're supposed to do? What's everybody doing? It's the rat race of climbing the ladder. Who's going to get there first? Who's going to make the net most money? Who's going to get the promotion and get the raise so that you can have the nicer car? We call this the American dream, chasing money, fame, and all the things. But money, fame, and all the things the way that the world lives, it is not compatible with mine and your faith. This is not a God that we can follow, but many of us treat it like a God. This is what we spend our time and energy worshiping and pursuing. I've got to have more money so that I have more things so that other people will want to be like me. And I think Christians, this is one of the sins, this is one of the things that we let slip into our life where we wouldn't let other sins slip in. Christians are very prone to be sucked into the world's habits of money and spending instead of God's commands for money and spending. I had a pastor friend one time, he told me, he said, I never, I never preach in church about the need for giving or the need for submitting your finances to Christ. I never do that. He said, every time I've ever done that in my life, offerings would go down the next week. And doesn't that tell us that how powerful this God of money, fame, and all the things can be in a Christian's life when the men who are supposed to be leading your God are scared of challenging this God because people will leave churches or get mad or stop giving. And so people stop teaching and we don't address this topic because Christians will not take us meddling in their wallets. It's crazy that this, this God has that much power in our churches. And that's the very reason we need to take just a few weeks and we need to challenge the God of money, fame, and all the things. That's the very reason we need to talk about your finances and submitting them to God. That's the very reason we need to teach about giving and living sacrificially for God because we have to expose this false God that's, that's scared, uh, that keeps us from growing spiritually. Now, we're not going to be scared of this topic, and, and I want to talk about it even knowing that some of us are uncomfortable with this, but I think it's also fair to acknowledge that the other side of that exists too. That this topic has been abused over time by pastors, by people who have something that they call a church and they wear suits and ties and, and they say things like, hey, we were talking about this this morning. They say things like, hey, if you will send money to us, we will send you a prayer. For only $20, you can get a blessing from one of our pastors. Like all we want is your money. Now, let me just say this. If you ever hear a pastor say those things to you, that giving money to the church or giving money to that pastor is going to help you in some way, that is going to give you something that there's some kind of a transactional um, 
value to that. I just want to tell you, just go ahead and run away. You'll never hear me say that, but if you do, run away from me. So we are not today, we are not selling blessings and trying to get you to give more to the church so that somebody can get rich. Some of you are sitting here and you're already uncomfortable and Satan is going to tempt you with this thought. Satan is going to come to you and say, well, the church must be in financial trouble and the pastor and the deacons are trying to figure out how to get more money into the church. And that's, that's why they're talking about giving. But listen, the other thing we are not doing this morning is we are not trying to improve church finances. I have never had this combo with anybody in the, this combo, this conversation. I had combo in my notes. This conversation with anybody in the church where I said, hey, the finances aren't very good. We got to figure out how to get some more money. I should preach on that. I, I don't do that. We won't do that. You can ask Brother Larry about that. We have never had that particular conversation. And as a matter of fact, I live my life when it comes to church finances where I just assume as long as we're doing what we're supposed to do, God's going to take care of that part. So don't think that, that's about, that this is about trying to improve church finances. We are also not fundraising right now. I specifically did not want to preach this at a time when we are asking you to give a little bit extra like we did a few weeks ago or like we will when we, uh, when we come around to give another missions offering sometime in the fall. Specifically, I didn't want this tied to a time when we're trying to ask you to give extra. That's not what we're doing. And some of you need to hear this. We are not judging you based on how much you give or what you choose not to give. We, we are not assigning value to you because of that. Now, this is what our goal is. Every single time that we come into this place and we meet together, we have one goal. And that is that we grow in love and commitment to Jesus Christ. That's it. Nothing else. Nothing else is ever going to happen in this place except for we come here and we try to grow in our love and commitment for him. And so our goal for this series is simply an extension of that, is that we grow in our love and commitment to Christ in our financial lives as well as in our spiritual lives. That, that's the only thing we're doing. And if you are not already, um, if your love and commitment to Christ is not already reflected in your financial life, it's for one of two reasons. One of two reasons only. Number one is nobody's ever taught you and you really, you really don't know how or why you should be giving to God. You don't know what the purpose of that is and, and that's, that's on me. That's my job. And so we come into this series to correct that so that we know why we give and why we sacrifice to serve God. The other reason you may not be doing this is maybe, maybe for you it's hard to give up that money. Maybe the God of money, fame, and all the things is hindering your spiritual growth. And therefore, for that reason, that's also on us as a church to, to come out and say, we've got to challenge this God that is keeping you from growing spiritually with Jesus Christ. See, Jesus, we'll, we'll study this story a lot, but Jesus once talked about money, and this is what he said about money. He said, a person cannot serve two masters. You're going to serve one and neglect the other or vice versa. You've got to choose which one it is. And he said the choice between serving two masters for so many of us is you will either serve your money and you will spend your life pursuing money and making that bank account go up or you will spend your life pursuing Christ. You must choose one or the other. And so as we go into this, I want you to know this is like that when, you're, when your dad or your mom would punish you and put you in timeout or spank you. And what was those dreaded words? This hurts me more than it hurts, hurts you. I'm doing this for you. Listen, this series, this is for you. This is not for my benefit. It is not for the church's benefit. It's not because it's easy. 
is because I think many of us are having our faith robbed from us by a false God that has infiltrated our life. That we spend too much time focused on the topics of my money and my fame and all the things that I want. So in Acts 4, I think I said Acts 5 earlier, I apologize for that. In Acts 4, we're going to see a story that deals specifically with money in the church. Now, if you're not familiar with Acts, let me just give you a quick rundown of where we're at in Acts. So in the Gospels, we see the story of Jesus Christ. Jesus dies on a cross for your sin. His blood is shed for you so that you must not be punished for your sin. Three days later, he comes back to life. And for 40 days, he walks the earth showing everybody, look, it's me. Here's the scars. Here's the the holes in my hands. All of these things. And after 40 days, he ascends into heaven. That's the beginning of the chapter of the book of Acts. And so the book of Acts details what the early church does after Jesus has left. And what we're going to find today in Acts chapter 4 is something that amazes me about the early church, is they've escaped the God of money, fame, and all the things. It's not a problem in their life. It's not something that tempts them away from God. They've completely surrendered and lived sacrificially for Jesus Christ. So, So let's read this story of how these early believers were living here. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet. And distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. So here's the background of where we're at with these early believers. Here you've got the church in the first few books of Acts. The church is growing rapidly. Like one one time it's 3,000 people get saved and are added to the church. One time it's 5,000. Sometimes it just says multitudes. Lots and lots of people are giving up their lives and surrendering to Jesus Christ and becoming Christians and following him and joining the church. This is happening very, very quickly. Now to do this at this time, what you need to understand is that that would make you a societal attitude outcasts to suddenly join this cult of people who follow this guy who was killed on a cross and now you're claiming he came back to life your friends and your family would have disowned you so at this time all you had was the church all you had was your family and it turns into this community of people who grow together that's why we meet here as a church it's not a building it's you and I coming together as believers saying I want to grow spiritually with you and I hope you're growing spiritually with me that's what we're doing here just as the early church did but in the spiritual growth as they become so close to each other it seems like they lost their sense of property Uh, the Bible says here that nobody really thought of his possessions as his own it's like this is for all of us People would routinely take their houses or their lands or their fields and they would go sell them and they'd bring that money back and they would give it to the apostles and say, this is for the church. Use it for the needs of the people that are here. And so you have this this group of people that are doing this amazing thing, living so selflessly. Now, before some of you turn me off, I'm, I'm not going to advocate that you give up your house or your car to give money to the church. However, I also won't say that's outside of the realm of possibilities that God could call somebody to do. There, there's no rule that said that they had to do this. They wanted to, and this is an example for us to study, to ask about our hearts and what God we serve. Is Why would these people do this? Like, you guys would think I was crazy if I demanded everybody goes home, sells one of your vehicles. 
Most of you will still have another one. Sell one of your vehicles and we're going we're gonna to give that money to the church. Please go do that now. Like everybody, nobody's coming back next week in our society. And so we look at, we look at, look at this and go, why? why would these people be so willing when nobody's even instructing them to do so? Why would they do this voluntarily? And the scripture answers us with this. It says they were of one heart and one soul. They were united around Jesus Christ so deeply, so deeply that they lived self, selflessly. And some of you are like, you don't, that makes us uncomfortable. That's not why I came here this morning. I didn't come here to be told that I needed to live selflessly. I'm just here trying to make sure I don't spend eternity very, very warm. I don't want to hear about living selflessly. But when you see these Christians and how they are growing in Christ, that's what they see. And so for just a second, just forget your insecurities about what you may end up giving up or what I may say about this topic. Let's just drop that for a second. Let me ask you this question. How did these people who were just like you and me, they were real people, how did they come around to where they were willing to sacrifice? Because I know good and well that if somebody came to me and said, Brown, I need you to give this up, I'd be like, ooh, that's tough. How did they get there? That is so abnormal for us. What, what made it normal for them with no command and no rules? It's not our nature. But here's what it was, is they had a true belief that their lives were meant for something bigger than money, fame, and all the things. Let me say that again. These early followers of Christ had a true, deep down, held belief that their lives were meant for something bigger than money, fame, and all the things. And that's offensive to me. It's offensive to some of us in here because we live our lives like there is nothing more important than me. I'm gonna spend my life taking care of me. I'm gonna put money back in the savings account. I'm gonna make sure that I have all of my stock portfolio taken care of. I'm going to invest this so that one day I can live on the beach and not have to do anything. It's offensive for us to say that there might be something bigger than I am in the world. But this early church, this early church believed it. And let me just ask you this question about this topic. What if they were right? What if you and I were meant to live for something bigger than the newest car or a bigger house or the bragging numbers in a bank account? But what if there's something bigger and better out there for us? And that was the message of Jesus Christ. Jesus, Jesus came to this world and he talked about them and said, you've got this world in front of you and you're forced to live here. He said, but there's something bigger about you than just what you can see right now. There's a whole another spiritual kingdom that you can be a part of. You don't have to live your life pursuing sin, pursuing false gods and thinking that, thinking that those things will make you happy. And so what if, what if Jesus was right? What if Jesus knows more about what would make us happy than you and I do? What if the early Christians figured that out? On your notes in your bulletin, if you're taking notes, this is your first take-home truth. It says, we defeat money, fame, and all the things by belief in the greater goodness of Jesus. And when we hear the story of Jesus Christ, when we hear that Jesus came, God in man's form, he came here and he died to get you. He loved you that much. It comes with a challenge for us if we choose to follow him, just like Phil Robertson faced with drugs, sex, and rock and roll. Which one will be my God? Will it be my money and the fame, people wanting to be me and all the things I can buy, buy with that money? Or will it be him? Will he be my God? And make no mistake, the early church had to ask themselves that. They didn't just wake up one morning and go, I don't like money anymore. 
They had to make a decision. Which one will be my God? And what they chose in this moment, what they chose was God because by comparison, they believe that God is greater. And when we understand that, we love him more than we love ourselves. And it's hard for us to give up that idea that maybe, maybe I can balance it. Jesus spent a lot of time traveling and the Bible records tons of times when he had conversations with people. And there's one conversation with a young man that, that really sticks out to me and it always has. So the Bible doesn't give this young man a name. It just called him the rich young ruler, which tells us that, that he was probably in charge of some property and some estates. He lived a very lavish lifestyle and he came to Jesus. He said, I believe you've got the answer to this. He says, tell me, what do I have to do? What must I do to be saved? And Jesus looks deeper into this man's heart. And, and this is the answer that Jesus gave this man. He says, go home, take everything that you own and give it to the poor. Now, now, before we get a little bit confused, is that a condition of salvation? No, condition of salvation is not selling everything that you own. Faith is the only condition of salvation. Giving yourself to Christ, choosing to follow him. But what faith says, what faith says is God or Jesus is my God. I choose to follow him. That's what faith is. It's not just a belief that he exists. Faith is saying, I choose to follow God. And as Jesus looked into this man's heart and soul, he knew that he couldn't do that. He knew that he could not be this man's God because this man already had a God of money, fame, and all the things. Now, as I look at him, and I assume since that was 2,000 years ago, he has long since passed away. And it seems like such a small story. His life seems so small when you think about it as some guy who existed a long time ago. And I ask myself, why would he resist? You've got Jesus Christ in front of you. He's right there. You've probably seen him heal people. He's doing miracles left and right. You get to look into the face of Jesus and look into his eyes and just see the love that explodes out of them. And when he says, hey, money is a problem for you, things are a problem for you, the Bible says this, it says the young man walked away disappointed. Why would you leave Jesus in that way? I guess I could ask us that right here. We can't see him physically, but we can, we can see him in scripture. Why would we walk away from Jesus? Why did this young man didn't? Or why did he resist? I think this is the reason. I think, I think that there were a bunch of lies that told him that he should walk away from Jesus. And the problem with Christians now is I think we believe those same lies. We believe those same lies about money and our possessions. So in your notes here, there's three lies that we believe I wanna talk about. Uh, lies that we believe about money. The first lie is that money equals happiness. And, and many of us in our American society, that is the American dream, that money will make you happy. And we build our lives on this concept that I need a good job, I need to work more hours, I need more stuff because money will eventually make me happy if I can just get enough of it. And because we believe that lie that money makes you happy, we also believe the inverse of that. We believe the lie that says that lack of money equals lack of happiness. We think that if those things, or if, if the money goes away, that we will not be happy. And that is why it is so hard for some of us to give. Because, because we have to give up something out of my wallet that I could spend on me. And that'll make me less happy. I won't eat out as much this week. I won't see the bank account numbers rise quite as much. I won't get to buy the nicest car. I may have to go for the model without all of the bells and whistles if I give to God. 
I remember the first time that I really felt God called me to tithe and he made it very, very clear to me. He's like, Brian, I want you to tithe on this specific money that you have. I was like 22, 21, 22 and I had this money. Um, it was actually some refunded money from college and I'm like, okay, fine. T tithe is 10%. So 10%, I start doing the math. I was like, that's $150. And at 22 years old, $150 was a lot of money. I didn't spend $150 on nothing, much less give it away. I was like, all right, God, I'll do it. And I remember going to the bank. I remember it's just agonizing. One, five, zero at that ATM. And it spent that money out. And I'm like, I haven't held this much money in months. And I'm going to give it away. And I remember coming into this building and that offer plate coming around. is like, maybe I should hold on to it till next week. I took it out and I dropped it. I dropped it in the offering plate and I never missed it again. But I believe that as well. I was like, this money would make me much happier sitting in a bank account where I could use it to buy gas. Wouldn't buy much gas right now, would it? Where, where I could use it to go out to eat, where I could go see my friends. Maybe it's a hotel for one night. That money, I believed, would make me happier. But I was wrong and we're wrong when we believe this lie. That money is where my happiness lies. Money is where our happiness lies when we choose to let it lie in money. Does that make sense? I, I love our kids. We got kids back there right now. They're learning about Jesus in children's church. I love it. They're back there. And when these kids come out of here, they're going to be so excited. They're going to come to, if you're a parent, your kids are going to come up and they're probably going to shove some paper in your face and it's going to have like a cotton ball glued to it and some coloring outside the lines. They're going to be like, look what I made. And they'll sometimes come and show me that. And they're so happy over a handful of goldfish, some paper, and a cotton ball. What happened to us? That used to be us. Little things used to be our happiness. We could, we could find happiness in things like that. But, but as we grew up, the world has trained us. And listen, the world will train our children if we do not train them differently. The world has trained us that, no, your happiness shouldn't be in simple things. It should be in money. And I can tell you right now that we've redefined happiness in our adult life. Ask any servant in this church. Ask a Sunday school teacher. Ask a deacon. Ask our sound guys up here. Ask them, why do you do that? Nobody's going to be like, they pay me a lot of money. <laughs> like, why do you do that? Because it makes us happy. Because you can redefine your happiness with Jesus Christ, where it is not about how much money you have. Lie number two that we believe is that enough money will fulfill me. Enough money will fulfill me. Let me ask you a question. You don't have to shout it out. But what's your number? You've thought of it. I bet you everybody in this room has thought of it. What's the number that you thought, if I made that much money a year, I would be happy? I'll tell you what mine is. Mine's $85,000. Some of you are like, well, is that all? And that's all. And, and the reason I came up with that is not even because I have this lifestyle planned out. It's because one of my friends got a, got a promotion. I'm like, hey, how much money are you making now? It's like 85000 And I'm like, whoa, if I made that much money, I would never be unhappy. I re that happened to me two weeks ago. I was already planning this. And in my mind, I'm going, whoa, if I had that much money, like I'd make everything easier. I could put money in savings, have a bigger house. And I immediately started to go in that mindset just because of comparison. I think most of you have that, that idea. And, and for most of it, it's... it's three, five, ten thousand more than I make now? Let me ask you this question though. Whatever your number is, what was your number when you were 20? Or even 10 years ago? 10 years ago, my number was $36,000. Because I was a brand new teacher and I looked at people who had been working five and ten years and I looked at their pay skill. I said, one day I'll be making what they make, which is more than I make now, and I'll be happy. And when I got there, the number changed. 
See, money, money will not fulfill us. It cannot make us happy because there's no such thing as enough money. Last year was a COVID year, and I know it was tough on everybody, but I've got some educators in here that work in schools. Last year was a rough year if you worked in a school, as it was for everybody. I know it was. But, but at the end of the year, there was some extra money appropriated from the government just for COVID-related things. And our particular school, along with a lot of schools, made this really awesome decision, said that our teachers and our staff have had a really, really hard time this year. Let's take some of that money and give them a bonus. And I'm all right, yes, give me a bonus. I'm for that. Now, the way that they made this work, because they had to tie it to COVID numbers, they took all of the extra responsibilities they felt like we had to do in the day that we didn't have to do before COVID, like cleaning the desk and taking temperatures and all that stuff. And they said, okay, so you probably spent half an hour a day doing these extra things. We'll pay you this hourly amount that equals this much at the end of the year. But the problem with that is the way that they put it in the system is it was things that you were doing while you were there. And they said, to make this all, when the government comes around and audits our books, to make this all legal, if you weren't at school, you don't get the money for that day. But what if I worked at home? You, don't, you, you weren't at school, so we can't pay you for that because we're paying you for things you did at school. Well, what if I was on a field trip? You don't get the money because you weren't at school. And so these bonuses came out. And, and like, for the most part, people were kind of excited. It ended up being right around somewhere between $1,000 to $1,500 for every person. Free money, just extra money given to us at the end of the year after the work was done. That was the most miserable day I have ever worked at my school because somebody comes and goes, I didn't get paid for seven days because I was quarantined. I took those school trips. I was off all the time with these kids with the basketball team. I didn't get paid for those days. I only made 1300 instead of 1500 And people that day were so angry about free money. Why? Because it wasn't enough. Even though it was more than we expected or more than we agreed to pay for. Listen, money was never meant to fulfill you, but how Satan uses money is he uses it to distract you from what will fulfill you, which is your life with Jesus Christ. Lie number three, we believe, is that giving myself away is a curse. And this is what some of us are fighting in here right now as we're listening to this. Like, I don't feel like I should have to give up my money. This is, this is hard for me. I don't want to give to the church. I, I don't want to sacrifice of myself. And the reason we feel this way is because that's a curse, something that I'm required to do or have to do, but I don't want to. But actually, when you give yourself away is a blessing. It's actually a blessing to give yourself away. It goes against everything we believe about ourselves, but giving yourself away is a blessing. I was listening to a podcast several years ago. I wish I could remember the guy's name, but I remember his story so clearly. He was a Hollywood elite. He worked in the movie theaters. I don't know what he did, but he was like high up in this, this system. And he lived the lifestyle that we only see on TV, where he would go to like three or four parties a week. You've seen it on TV, like on a movie where they pull up to a mansion and everybody's having somebody park their Lamborghini and their Ferrari for them. And you walk inside and there's the pool out back and everybody's swimming. And there's waitresses walking around with, with free champagne. Like, that's the life he literally lived. That was his life every day. But he would go to a party one night. He would rub elbows with movie stars and supermodels. And the next day he would wake up feeling empty. And he got so tired of this, he finally went to see a therapist. And he said, why am I not happy? What's wrong with me that I'm not happy? I get in my foreign exotic sports car. I drive to a giant mansion. I sleep with a different uh, model every single weekend. Why am I not happy? I have everything anybody could ever want. After some time, the therapist convinced him. He said, what you need is, is you need something that will fulfill you. 
And the therapist took this guy who lives a, a million dollar lifestyle and said, what I want you to do is find a park and go clean up the trash. Dude thought he was crazy. But he was so desperate, he's willing to try anything. And so he, he made it a habit to go to different parks in the city and he would just pick up trash. He had a little bag and his little grabber out there looking like an inmate, grabbing his stuff and he'd throw it in the trash can and he'd look back and this does make me feel good. And he said something that changed his life is he got a phone call from a friend. He said, hey man, party's happening tonight, snap party at so-and-so's mansion. We're all gonna be there. We want you to come. All these girls will be there. There'll be all of this food, all of this liquor, all this stuff. Why don't you come? And the guy was kind of embarrassed. He's kind of busy. Like, hey man, I'm sorry, I got plans tonight. Oh, come on. He's like, no, this has been planned for a while. I can't leave. He didn't want to tell him where he was. And he hung up the phone. He went picking up trash and he got about that third piece of trash. And he, did I just, did I just turn down the party that everybody in the world wants to go to? because I'm having more fun picking up trash out of this park. And what he found was that giving himself away was more fulfilling than the absolute most that this world could offer. And that led him on a journey that led him to the ultimate fulfillment where he became a follower of Christ because he realized this world could not, would not make him happy. And so we see in all of this, we see in all of this that if we are asking you to give, if we're asking you to assess your spending habits, it's because I want you to find a blessing. I want you to know how good it feels to give yourself away. Listen, you will never be happier than when you give yourself away because you by yourself, you are not enough to make you happy. So these lies trap us with this God of money, fame, and all the thing. But the early church escaped this because they knew the truth that the love of Jesus was better. And it proof that it worked is they kept doing it. They didn't do it one time and go, oh, that was stupid. I shouldn't have gave that away. I wish I still had my house. They kept doing it. They kept selling things, kept giving away. They kept giving and they saw bigger things happen. Let's read verses 33 and 34 again. Listen to what's happening in the middle of this. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of land or houses sold them and uh, bought the prices of the things that were sold, and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. So we see two things in those verses that's happening in the middle of this. Uh, verse 33, God is working in this church. Verse 34 is, is God is providing for this church. And I think that's a weird placement. Like the scripture here, even into chapter five, it's talking about these people selling their things and giving it away. And in the middle of it, it's like a sandwich. In the middle of it, Luke's just like, you know, yeah, God was working and great grace was on them all. That's not a coincidence. It's not a coincidence that at that particular instant that God led Luke to write, God is working in the midst of what they're doing, in the midst of their sacrifice and giving. And this tells us something very, very special. When God's people are in full submission, it unleashes a power of God. I don't know how it works. I don't know why God chooses to work that way. But when his people come together and they're in full submission to God, it unleashes a power of God within them. It's not the money that they're giving. It's because of their obedience and their surrender and their worship of him. Our next take home truth is when God's people are surrendered to him, he works in mighty ways through them. See, these people had this heart that God was greater. And because of that heart, the power of God was unleashed in them. God's grace was on them. The apostles are preaching fairly. fairly um, lost my word. The, the, the apostles are preaching uh, very powerfully. And I think it's fair to ask us, is like, is the power of God working in us in that strong? 
Like us as individuals, do you really feel like God is just like flowing out of you when you go to work? I think of this on a church level. What about Ramsey Heights? Do we look like this? Are we, are we powerfully doing the work of God? And if not, I think we might ask, is that a heart problem with us? It seems like if their heart is right and the power is flowing out of them, if we looked at ourselves and we self-assessed and said there's no power flowing of us, we might arrive at the answer that maybe there's a heart problem within us. Were they, is it possibly that we are hindered by money, fame, and all the things? See, how are we asking, let's put it this way, how are we asking God, how are we praying for somebody we love? God, take my spouse. God, take my, my children, take my grandchildren, take my brother, take my sister, take my friend, and God, become the most important thing in their life. Let them find you. Oh God, but you're second in my life. Like, I want them to live for you. I want them to be saved, but I, I won't surrender for you. God, would you please bring somebody I love to surrender? Would you bring them to salvation? But I, I won't surrender my life to you. I just want them to surrender their life and their sin. It seems to me that if that's our heart, that would hinder how God uses us. I think we would all agree. Like, if I was having an affair, now let me stop, because some of you were asleep and you heard the word affair and now you're looking at me. I'm not having an affair. It seems to me like if I was having an affair, I was cheating on my wife, you guys might question how effective I am in ministry. And so I think we can also say if what we worship in life is our money, if it takes us away from God, we might also assess that our ministries might suffer collectively. See, there's either in this, let me, let me back up. Money can hinder you or it can be a proof of God's work in you. See, I love this, what it says here. It says, God's grace was powerfully at work in them. And there's this connection of what's going on. God's work was powerfully at work in them, which allowed them to be willing to give away what they had. It's a sign of what God does in us when we grow spiritually into the spiritual discipline of giving away. And that's why we address this topic. It's because we want to see spiritual growth in you. I come here to spiritually grow with you. I don't come here to preach at you. This is my church too. And if we're giving, that's a sign of God working in us, but it's also a way God works through us. But I think that the core of this particular scripture is this, that there's a vibrant picture of the church here. They have a vibrant and a healthy faith, and it manifests itself as vibrant and healthy giving habits. I think we can also say that an unhealthy faith will manifest itself as unhealthy giving habits. And what we want is we want a healthy faith. Because that's what God requires of us. You, you did nothing by coming here this morning if you didn't come with a healthy heart. I love you. I'm glad that you're here. But, but we didn't come here to check off a box for the week. We came here to grow our faith and our connection to God because that's what God wants. God doesn't want to share your heart. God, God does not want you to do something because you feel like you have to. God is concerned about what is in your heart. And because of that, Ramsey Heights here, we are concerned about what is in our hearts. And God's not concerned about your money. He's concerned about if you love your money more than you love him. In the next chapter, in chapter five, we don't have time to read it, but it tells a story that some of you have heard. There's two people in the church and they see everybody giving their money. They see, they see it going away and they also see how those people are praised and respected when they do that. And they say, I want some of that. There's a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. So they went and they took some land that they had and they sold it. And they didn't have to, nobody told them to, but they decided to take that money and lay it at the apostles' feet so they could get the fame and the recognition that everybody else got. Except 
they held a little bit of it back. The Bible uses that word. It says they kept some of it back. The uh, translation of that might be they misappropriated it or they stole it. Now, because of the way this story lays out, you can tell it was obvious that they were presenting this to the apostles. This is all we made. Maybe they had promised, we're going to sell this and give it all to God. And they laid it at the apostles' feet, and, and somehow, somehow the apostles saw something that wasn't right. And said, is this, is this all of it? You don't have to give all of it, but that's, you said it was all of it. Is this all of it? And they're both like, yeah, this is all of it. Forget that 20% that we saved at home. This is all of it. And because of that, because of that, right there in front of everybody, both Ananias and Sapphira just fell flat dead. So I guess the takeaway is you better put some money in the offering plate if you want to live to see tomorrow. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Some of you, some of you got real serious there for a second. Now, here, here's the takeaway from it. The apostles told them, they said, nobody's requiring you to do this. Why would you pretend to do it and then hold money back for yourself? Like, that's, that's huge. If you guys go sell your house and you drop 80% of it in the offering plate here, I'm not going to come at you asking, why didn't you give the 20% extra? Nobody's requiring you to do that. But because they pretended to have this heart, it reveals something about them. It reveals that they weren't actually trying to serve God. They weren't serving God. They were still using their money as purchasing power. We spend money on lots of things, but honestly, at the end of it, what do we, what do we spend money on? We spend money on people looking at us. Why do I want the flashy car? So when I drive around, people think how good looking I am. Why do I want the big house? So my neighbors will know that I'm smart and that I'm well-to-do. See, these people, Ananias and Sapphira, they were still trying to purchase the same things because money, fame, and all the things was still their God. And what I want to tell you today as you leave here, don't be like Ananias and Sapphira. You're not going to make me happy with dropping money in the offering plate because I'm not going to know it. I don't ever touch the money. Larry's not going to sit there and go, oh, I'm so excited that so-and-so gave and come give you a special handshake. Like nobody in this church is going to give you any more for the money that you drop in the offering plate because you cannot purchase happiness or respect or even God's happiness by doing this. And trying, according to the story, trying is offensive to God. Now, his, his only desire for you, his only desire for me, for us, is that our heart says that he is my God. And because he is my God, I choose to let him be God over my finances. Not because he loves me more, not because I get a special seat in heaven, but because I choose to surrender to him. Our last take-home truth is this, is God doesn't want my money. He wants to be God over every part of my life. And that includes finances. Sometimes we look at this and we think giving money that's going to equal me being a good person or God's going to be happy, but that's not true. It's letting your wallet declare who your God is and rejecting the God of money, fame, and all the things by investing in the eternal. And I love this. I love this. We should live. We should live like we belong to God because we do. This is what the Bible says about our relationship with God. It says we were bought with a price. When I buy something, it's mine. And when he bought me, I became his. And it come at a horrible price that God used the purchasing power that he had, his life, and he went to a cross because what he wanted was not your money. He, he didn't die on a cross so that somebody somewhere would drop a check in the offering plate. He died on a cross because he wanted your heart. And all he asks, all he desires from us is that we put our faith in him that we declare to him, you are my God. I choose to surrender and I choose to follow you. That's what faith is. And so this morning as you're leaving, I don't know where you're at. Maybe you guys dropped $10,000 in the offering plate. I don't know, I don't care. But what I do wanna ask you is what's the next step for you? 
What's the next step of obedience and surrender in him? How are you saying as you walk out of here, God, you are my God, and I will let you be God over this? Maybe it's putting your faith in him for the first time. Would love to pray with you and tell you what it means to accept him, to become a Christian, to be a follower of him. It's the best decision you'll ever make. Maybe, maybe you're a follower of Christ and you're like, ah, I've been holding out. Maybe it's time for you just to pray that out with him. Whatever it is, don't leave here the same as you walked in. Please stand.